There you go, Cindy Lauper, time after time. Hmm. Uh, on ABC Radio with Rod Quinn. My apologies to Jacob if I in any way uh, implied that perhaps uh, his uh, answers didn't come out of his brain. Apologies, uh, Jacob. No problems whatsoever. Uh, sorry he didn't win the quiz. Uh, but thanks very much for everyone who played. We'll do it again tomorrow. On ABC Radio... Oh, that was not my implication, by the way. Other people may have said it, but I certainly didn't. On ABC Radio, you're with Rod Quinn. It is time to find out what is happening. Well, you know, I was going to say in the United States. But we, you know, have been pretty much exposed to it over the last uh, couple of days with the bizarre, the bizarre uh, presidential debate. And Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest in Boston, Massachusetts. Boston, uh, Celeste, good morning. Good morning. You know, there's, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that debate because it was a strange one to say the least. But there's always a big build-up to these presidential debates. I don't know how many votes they actually change or whether anyone can remember anything. They can remember one or two moments from various debates over the years one or two lines perhaps and that's about it but this one people will always remember this even though they're trying to forget it would you say yeah i think that's true i think that uh jake tapper from cnn probably summed it up most aptly when he called it a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck and i think he was being uh you know pretty generous with that yeah so it was a disaster. Um, I mean, okay, so what happened? Um, it started out sort of normally, but then it really went off track pretty quickly because it seems as though the president didn't want to play by the rules agreed to. That's one thing. But he also didn't want to play by the, the generally accepted rules of behaviour in polite society. And, like, I wasn't really surprised when I was watching him. That's just the way that he he acts. Why were people so surprised, do you think? I'm not sure if people were so much surprised by it as they were sort of dismayed or turned off or, frankly, concerned. Uh, I think you're right in saying that typically uh, American presidential debates don't decide elections. There are a lot of people who don't watch them. First of all, there are people who come into a debate having decided already who they're going to vote for, and maybe they're looking at it as sort of a a tradition or a political spectacle. Uh, Maybe for a a small percentage of undecided voters, the, the debates might carry some weight. But I think what we saw in this case was just a real breakdown of sort of decorum uh, at the presidential level, the highest level of our government, uh, in what was just a sort of trash talk fest that got completely out of control, where a lot of times you couldn't even hear what the candidates were saying because they were so busy interrupting and insulting each other. And the debates didn't really end up serving their purpose of educating people about the differences between the two candidates. And that's really disappointing. Again, I don't know whether those debates are ever about educating people about, you know, the various, uh, you know, policies. It is a a way of scoring a point or two over your opponent. That's certainly the case. But it seems to me that President Trump would have been better off keeping quiet because Joe Biden did not do a good job in that debate. He only did a good job in perhaps comparison with the president. But he stumbled, he fumbled, he got things wrong. If 
Trump had just thought, you know what, I'm going to shut up and let you keep making mistakes, he would have easily come out of that debate the winner, it seems to me anyway. I think that it's true that, well, there are two things about Joe Biden. Number one, he does have a lot of experience on the debate stage as a both a presidential and a vice presidential candidate. So he has been doing this for a long, long time. At the same time, he certainly has a deserved reputation as a guy who doesn't have a lot of trouble tripping over his own feet. He's very prone to verbal gaffes. He may lose his train of thought. He can get irritated easily, that sort of thing. And so, uh, as you say, the you know the reasonable tactic would have been to um, to have Donald Trump sort of stand back and stay removed, given that sorry, there's a little noise there, um, given you know his stature as the president of the United States, and say, look, let Joe Biden you know effectively cut his own throat rhetorically. Donald Trump though is just not constitutionally capable of keeping his mouth shut that long. He likes and needs to be the center of attention. And that was entirely evident during the debate. So Biden called Trump the worst president we'd ever had, uh, America's ever had. Um, Trump, on another occasion, uh, talked about, said, you know, don't talk about being smart. And then, you know, said, well, he actually, you know, it was a falsehood. It was a lie saying that Biden had run last in his class at law school. In fact, he didn't. But he was right down the bottom in a class of 80-odd. He was in the 70s, I think. And that's one thing. But, of course, President Trump has gone out of his way to make sure that people can't get a hold of his transcripts at school, certainly in university. So we don't know how Trump went at school. Yeah, he went to uh, extreme lengths. And I think we talked about uh, Michael Cohen, his former uh, personal attorney, having gone to extreme lengths to prevent the release of any of President Trump's academic records. Obviously, we know he's not been uh, a fan of the idea of releasing his tax returns so that we can accurately assess his true wealth and indebtedness and so on. So Trump certainly... uh, launched a lot of broadsides at Biden. But to be fair, Biden was not exactly the picture of uh, politics during this debate. I mean, saying to whatever you think of him, the sitting president of the United States, quote, will you shut up, man, is not typically something that we see in these venues. And calling him a clown as well. I mean, it you know, it didn't reflect well on him, although, you know, in that dumpster fire, of course, you know, people are looking mostly at the fact that, uh, in fact, Chris Wallace, the moderator of the debate, you know, when Trump said, look, you know, kind of you're picking on me, Wallace said, look, hey, you're the one doing most of this, which is probably right, I'm sure. Um, but this was the moment that uh, has got most of the attention. Uh, here we go. Are you willing tonight? to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I would say say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right wing. So what are you you, you saying? I'm I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. Then do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them... What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right like supremacists and right supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. 
Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left because this is not a right-wing problem. This is, this is a left-wing problem. This is a left-wing problem. White supremacist. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not militia. That's what his FBI, his FBI director said. Well, thank you. There you go. So he refused to call out white supremacists and repudiate them. It was, in fact, Vice President Biden that gave us the name Proud Boys and said, why don't you do, you know, like, uh, repudiate Proud Boys, um, and he wouldn't do that. So the, I suppose the question is why? Why wouldn't he do it? And does he have a point also that uh, much of the problems has been caused by people on the left? Yeah, we've been thinking and, and talking a lot about this, and there could be a few different reasons. Number one, it, on a theoretical level, you can understand that uh, a president up in a tough re-election campaign doesn't want to alienate voters, even if they are people who hold morally repugnant views, even though uh, it would be very easy for him to um, to signal to them that he sort of tacitly endorses or accepts their behavior or their ideology by not denouncing them, you know. Maybe he just doesn't want to take that step. I mean, of course, the you know the complete extreme of the spectrum is that he believes these things. Now, I mean, he has said in comments uh, prior to this that uh, he doesn't uh, endorse uh, white supremacy or these uh, militant groups and so on. But people do remember when he was asked to denounce the incidents at Charlottesville, um, which involved people literally running around screaming and waving torches and saying, Jews will not replace us. And that was, of course, the the famous incident in which he said there were, you know, potentially good people on both sides. Now, there is there really a both sides argument to a situation like that, which did lead to somebody dying in the case of Charlottesville? Certainly, that is that is not an argument that I personally am able to make. But uh, Joe Biden had to walk a line, you know, in the same sense, um, by saying that there's both systemic injustice, um, you know, in our in our policing system, but not offending cops, saying, you know, most cops are perfectly good at doing their jobs and well-meaning, but there are some bad apples. I think that the difference there is that Donald Trump not being willing to condemn very easily, you know, in something that can be very easily be done, not being willing to condemn a morally repugnant, racist, discriminatory ideology that has led to violence, mm. physical violence in this country. That's something that people do take notice of, and with good reason. Yeah, and again, it's a moment where President Trump, if he had just stopped this sort of fire hose of sort of interruption and abuse, he could have made another good point, which is when he turned to President, uh, Vice President Biden and said, look, you know, name one police organization that has endorsed you. And, you, you know, and, and Biden was unable to do that. And, you know, for someone like President Trump is running on a uh, um, uh, law and order ticket, you know, that's a very strong thing. And, uh, you know, Biden was unable to, to say anything about that. And there were so many times that Trump really did trump Biden. Uh, and yet that's all been lost. All of that was, you know, pointless because of the way he behaved. Uh, you know, what what's going to happen next time? How do you think it'll be done? Well, that's that's the big question. Uh, will there be more stringent controls on how the debate itself actually works? Not what the people are going to say, but how things are actually 
moderated in order to make this a more meaningful experience. I mean, just trying to transcribe this or listen to it was was really difficult because they were shouting over each other to the point where you couldn't hear anything. So there has been discussion through the Committee on Presidential Debates and so on about taking basic measures like giving the moderator the power to cut off somebody's mic if they're interrupting or going over their time or otherwise flouting the rules of the debate. Now, uh, Biden has said that he would be willing you know, to go along with some changes like that. Trump says that you shouldn't change the rules of the game when the thing is already in progress. So it'll be interesting to see what actually happens. But if the point of all these things is to give the American people a chance to hear from the candidates, a measure that would help you actually hear them would seem to make some sense. And I understand what the president is saying, but he was changing it as he went along because he was not, um, you know, he was not following the rules as set down that you had to keep quiet for two minutes while the other person was speaking. So he's already thrown the rules out. And Biden, of course, was doing that as well, but only, I think, when prompted by the, the president or provoked by the president. So they've already thrown the rules out. What difference would it make if they changed the rules now? I, I you know, I mean, that could have changed when they should have changed them during the debate, let alone between debates. Yeah, I think they just weren't equipped for that. And to be fair, uh, Chris Wallace from Fox News, who was the, the moderator and the designer of the questions in this debate, had a really hard job. Some, some people want to run him down and say he lost control of the thing or that he wasn't assertive enough. You know, as, as somebody who has actually been a participant in political debates as a, a moderator, as, as somebody asking questions... People do tend to take liberties. Certainly Donald Trump, whatever, you know, whatever respect is accorded to the office of the presidency. I don't think Donald Trump is known as a paragon of rule following hmm. in any, any sense of the word. But um, changing the rules now, we have two more debates coming up in October. Um, just making it easier for people to hear yes. and to guarantee each each candidate their allotted time, their fair amount of time doesn't seem unreasonable. Yeah. Next time it'll be a town hall style debate um, where people in the audience will be asking questions. So that'll be interesting. They're already you know, talking about turning microphones off while the other person's speaking. And then we go back to the, uh, the previous format for the third debate where Kristen Welker will be the moderator and we'll see how that goes. But look, you know, a lot of people watched, more than 70 million people watched. Whether they got anything out of it, I don't know. Not as many people watched it as the first debate last time. So, you know, the 10 million fewer people, perhaps those people have made up their minds now. Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest. Now, Celeste, you've written a book. I have. I've co-written co a book, yes. Now, tell us about it, because it's about voting, and it's not about why people vote, it's about how they vote. Exactly. So we wrote... Um, uh, a woman named Gabrielle Novello, another reporter, and I wrote a book in conjunction with Who, What, Why. That's an investigative, an independent investigative news site. Uh, and our book is called Is This Any Way to Vote? And the subhead is um, uh, Vulnerable Voting Machines and the Mysterious Industry Behind Them. And basically, we did this as kind of a, a public service and a primer for uh, other reporters, for people who are interested in sort of the business and physical function of voting. Because if you think about it in your life, you know, you know who made your computer, your car, your sneakers, your food, uh, you know, the paint on your walls. But you know, millions and millions of people every year use voting machines in some way. What do we know about them? Who are the people who make these things? In what ways are they vulnerable? How are they bought? 
and sold. The government spends millions and millions of dollars each year on a relatively small uh, number of companies that make these things. What do we know about them? Why is it, why is something that's so fundamental to our our exercise of democracy so obscure? So we try to take that apart in this project. And this all is very strange to Australians because basically when we vote, you got a piece of paper, a ballot paper and a pencil, you write your numbers on that ballot paper and you put it in a box which is locked until they open it after the uh, 6 p.m. at night when every polling place closes. This is the thing I find most bizarre about America is that not only every state but every county appears to have a different system, which there has been, and we've talked about this in the past, there should be a National Election Commission that runs all these elections. So what did you find in your investigation about the voting machines, which people are worried about uh, them being hacked and all sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, basically in terms of the business of voting, there are only three companies that control the vast, vast majority of the voting machine business in the United States. And of course, those companies don't necessarily want to share the wealth. And so they are very, very much involved in the government rulemaking processes that, you know, that dictate how voting machines are made, how they work. Uh, you know, how they're uh, bought, sold, updated, regulated, all these things. So it's, you know, it's quite literally like the players controlling the game. Um, and it's it's very interesting to think about, obviously, all the economic arguments for why less competition isn't better. Um, at the same time, you find that these companies are very active in courting local officials, whether it be through perks or advisory board positions or junkets or gifts or political contributions. You know, they're they're uh, exercising their sort of stranglehold on this bedrock facet of democracy in, in a very active way. And then the machines that they're actually making and hardware and software that they're making to tabulate these votes have a lot of problems. They are vulnerable. Even something like a change in weather, a humid day, can affect how well a voting machine functions. There's questions about the chain of custody. You know, for where are voting machines made? Are parts of them imported from, say, hostile nations like China? And what information is already on those machines by the time they get here? Where, you know, in what ways are they vulnerable to uh, physical intrusion or, uh, you know, software? Uh, uh, issues that that might cause a problem with tabulating collecting or tabulating votes like there's a there's really a lot going on here and in, in the united yeah. states we're certainly talking a lot about voting by mail but machines are used to tabulate ballots that are cast by mail too and you know that's a really big deal right now so did you find that there are reasons to be concerned especially coming up with the election really only uh, a month away uh, did you find that there are reasons that people ought to be concerned about their, the security of their ballot? Yeah, I mean, there are definitely, I'm not saying that there's, uh, you know, uh, a proven national conspiracy, you know, the kinds of things that the president talks about, about a massive uh, fraud conspiracy to throw the election per se, but there are definitely things that people can and should be watching in order to make sure that their ballot is properly cast and properly counted the way they want it to. Um, there are ways you can track your ballot to make sure that it it gets to where it's supposed to be going and is is counted so that your voice is heard. And yeah, there are definitely cracks in the system where uh, human error, machine error, and certainly uh, 
efforts to tamper with the result by by outside actors, by hostile forces, you know, those things really exist. And they are definitely something that um, could be vastly improved by a, a lot of, in some cases, simple security measures that uh, may have fallen by the wayside in some cases. For example, I mean, in order, is it too late to do anything for this election? It probably is. Too, well, it's too late to change out the physical machines that are being used. But, you know, there are there are sort of general tenets on, you know, how poll workers are trained to understand the machines, who services them. You know, how are they transported to and from poll sites? The idea that you're going to take a sensitive piece of machinery that is, again, a fundamental part of Americans choosing their leader, throw it on a truck take it out in a rainstorm and dump it in some room where anybody could have access to it, whether or not they should be authorized, where people have, you know, password as a password to get into the systems that take the information to and from the machines. Like, yeah, people should be concerned about that. Should people lose faith entirely in the process? No, they should not. They should continue to vote and they should continue to understand that for you know the vast majority of cases, voting does work the way it's supposed to work. But we see so many close call elections, especially on a local level, but you know increasingly at the national level, that people should genuinely wonder about why our system is the way it is, who's paying to keep it that way, and what can be done about it. I'm sure we'll talk to you about this again, uh, Celeste. Thank